0: You're listening to Episode 8 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level.
1: Be empowered to grow with the children in your life.
0: Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Episode 8 of Chat About Children, where we chat about all things children and support and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today we are chatting about feeding and fussiness. It's a common point of discussion amongst parents and even early childhood educators. You know, there's a lot of talk about feeding difficulties and fussiness when it comes to food. I know I've personally experienced it to a degree with my children and I know many families where it it is an issue. So I'm going to be joined by Nicole McGrath. She's a senior level speech pathologist and she does have specific clinical skills in feeding. We're going to chat about, you know, generally what we consider to be feeding difficulties. We're going to look at understanding how do we define fussiness when we're talking about our children's feeding. And we also look at some strategies to manage fussiness, which is valued information for all of us. And one of the things that we also need to know is what not to do when it comes to feeding your fussy child. And that's something that we're all going to find extremely useful. So let's get started and chat to Nicole. Joining me today for a chat about feeding and fussiness is Nicole McGrath. Nicole is a speech pathologist with specific skills in feeding. So she's going to help us understand this area a little more and also help us to gain some handy tips on managing any fussy feeders that we may have in the household. Nicole is a senior level speech pathologist, and she's worked across various public hospitals, educational and private sectors, and has also worked in various Australian states and internationally in the United Kingdom. Nicole does have specific skills in pediatric feeding. She's worked in a Sydney-based hospital as a pediatric feeding therapist in neonatal intensive care, in the high dependency unit and special care nursery, as well as a paediatric ward. So she has worked with feeding clients quite extensively within that section and within the private sector. Nicole's also done a lot of specific training with various approaches to manage feeding and her knowledge and her expertise is very well known as she creates quite holistic and innovative therapy programs to suit her clients' And their families. So, welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you for having me. So, and on top of all that, you've also got three children, haven't you?
1: I do, I do. And we all know the challenges of feeding your own children. So, I know,
0: absolutely. And I think this is a topic that a lot of people want to know more about. Fussiness is huge. And what to do about fussiness without kind of pulling your hair out is hopefully what you can help us on. Today, but just start by giving our listeners a bit of background as to what got you interested in speech pathology and the area of feeding to start with.
1: I think I was drawn to speech pathology initially with an interest in really just helping others, and I think communication is such a key skill in life and being able to support people across the lifespan with their ability to communicate and interact. Is such a worthwhile cause. So I was drawn to speech pathology to help others really. And then when I started working post my uni degree in a public hospital across pediatric and adult caseloads, I was exposed to feeding um, in much more detail. And feeding is something that is a lifelong skill. So being able to support families right from the beginning with a baby when they're first starting to learn to breast or bottle feed, needing lots of supports in there right through to children and then into adulthood. There are so many reasons why people might have difficulties with eating or drinking and to be able to support that skill is really rewarding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned babies. So obviously when we're looking at feeding, we're starting right from birth. And do you work with babies right through to kind of the school age and beyond or are you focused more on babies to school age
1: Now I focus more on babies to to school age really so uh, referrals might come in for a baby who is having difficulty with coordinating sucking and swallowing and breathing for breast or bottle feeding or refusing to feed at all and then referrals may come in at a slightly older age for infants who are transitioning to solids and they may be having difficulties or refusing or gagging at that stage And then there may be slightly older infants and leading into toddlers who get really stuck on that puree stage and have lots of difficulties transitioning to lumpy foods and finger foods and maybe gagging and regressing a little bit too or getting really stuck. And parents just need lots of support to know what to do when that happens. And then with the older kids, it's the old fussy eating often, Mm. which may be a result of lots of different causes but it's presenting as a big problem for the whole family at that point
0: absolutely and it is a really stressful time when feeding is an issue we have meals a number of times a day every day and it's a super stressful experience when there is a feeding difficulty going on particularly in, in your babies and toddlers and your school age kids when you're wondering if they're getting everything that they need through their food absolutely so when someone comes in to see you with a feeding issue, what are the key things that you look at in an assessment? And if we can start with the fussy toddler, for example, or, or young school-aged child, what are you looking at in an assessment?
1: Well, fussy eating is really quite common. Most, A lot of parents, and I won't say most, but lots of parents will say that their children are fussy to some degree. So working out whether that is part of a normal developmental process or something to be a little bit more worried about is really important. So within my initial assessment, I'll be having quite an in-depth discussion with the parents about what's happening at mealtimes, talking through medical and developmental history to link in any areas there that may be impacting on the child's ability to feed or willingness to feed and looking at oral skills as well so how is the child able to coordinate to be able to drink and chew and swallow and those sorts of skills can be looked at through a feeding assessment where i actually observe the
0: child eating and can see what's happening in real time okay fantastic and what about with the babies what are you assessing there
1: with babies again really watching them feed it's one thing to mm-hmm. hear what's happening, it's another thing to see what's going on and to be able to look at at the baby baby's structure and function. So structurally, looking at what is happening with oral cavity, looking at things like muscle tone or looking for tongue ties and seeing if there's anything there that's impacting on the way that the baby feeds. Liaising with medical professionals about whether there's a history of reflux or or gut issues or other things going on within the body that are impacting then on the baby's ability to to get nutrition. There may be allergies as another example there. And then Mm. looking at functionally how the baby is able to coordinate to be able to get that milk in safely.
0: Okay. So it's quite broad, isn't it? It's very broad.
1: And it's important to link in with the right professionals. And I think Feeding is so complex that it's important to be able to liaise with a paediatrician, or a GP, or a dietitian in some cases, or an occupational therapist to make sure that we are looking at the child as a whole unit, and mm. then work the family as well because it's not isolated to the child; it does affect the whole family.
0: Absolutely, and I guess you've touched on a point there, Nicole, where there's a number of professionals that can potentially assist with feeding. Absolutely. You've mentioned occupational therapists and dieticians, speech pathologists. A lot of people don't actually realise that speech pathologists work on feeding. So why would someone, for example, come and see a speech pathologist for feeding rather than an alternate professional? What's different?
1: Well, speech pathologists have specific training and experience in oral motor skills and oral structures and functions. So that's looking at the mouth and what's actually happening there while a child is eating, they're having to coordinate very fine motor skills to be able to manipulate the food within the mouth or to be able to coordinate sucking and swallowing and breathing with a bottle for a baby. So to be able to have an understanding of what's happening within the mouth gives a speech pathologist those unique skills to be able to help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. So if we talk a little bit more about fussiness when it comes to food, Like you mentioned that a lot of parents will deem their child to be fussy. So how do you actually differentiate between fussiness and not fussy (laughs) in a child? (laughs) How do you tell the difference? Because everyone's definition is going to be really different. So how do you define it?
1: Absolutely. And it's not a competition. There's no (laughs) parents often talk about my child eats three vegetables, well, mine only eats one. It's not a competition. If it's causing stress for the family and for the, not just for the child, for the parents with being able to provide meal times in an enjoyable manner, Mm
0: -hmm. then that's
1: a problem. Lots of children are picky eaters and may change the variety or number of foods that they eat over time. But for a child who in some circles, they say a problem feeders, then the restriction is usually much more significant. So a child may eat 20 foods or some may eat only six or seven foods. There may be quite a small number of foods that are actually eaten. There may be foods that are lost due to food jags, which is where you get stuck on a food and refuse other foods. Mm-hmm. But those foods are unlikely to come back again. So that number of foods accepted may reduce even more. There may be entire food groups that are missed. So vegetables is common. Meat is really common because it's a more difficult texture to chew. So when it's impacting on the whole family, when there are not many foods available to feed your child and you're really feeling like you're at a loss, then it's time to ask for some help and some assistance. And whether that's through local community services or through a more specialized professional, then then getting that support is really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes, would it be fair to say that sometimes is it, how can I put it, do we sometimes reprimand thinking they're just misbehaving or looking for like help us out here as parents? How can we tell the difference? Because sometimes it's tricky. It can
1: be really tricky. I really think kids, when it comes to food, they don't choose to be picky. It's not a behavior that they're doing to hurt your feelings or to annoy you. There is a certain degree of assertiveness and control within the toddler age bracket and Within that period from about 15 to 18 months till about four to five years of age, children are notoriously fussy with their eating. But for many children whose behaviours at the dinner table are quite overt, so crying and screaming or tantrums, then often underlying that, there are difficulties to do with the body and how that's operating, whether it's discomfort from reflux or constipation whether it's a sensory processing disorder where the child has difficulty with the textures that are presented to them on the plate, or it could be a difficulty with motor skills with being able to coordinate the muscles required for eating. There's usually something underlying that behaviour that's important to identify.
0: Absolutely. So there is a reason for a child avoiding a certain food
1: yeah usually there is we all have foods we like and don't like there will be some degree of that and that's very normal but when it's happening all the time then usually there's a reason
0: yeah yeah cool i know for my son he doesn't eat fruit if he knows it's fruit mm-hmm. but if i were to sneak some grated apple into cookies and not tell him or mashed banana He's totally fine. Yeah,
1: (laughs) and hiding vegetables and fruit is nothing new. Lots of parents do.
0: Do we just keep hiding stuff as much as possible when we feel that's a psychological association happening?
1: I'd encourage you to keep offering, keep exposing him to the fruit. So keep showing him those apples, take him shopping to see the different types of apples on the shelf and ask him to choose the apples to put in the bag. Being able to desensitize <laughs> a little bit is part of the process. Okay. As challenging as it feels,
0: <laughs> yep. the
1: more he can see and feel and touch and be exposed to those smells, exposed to those fruits, i oh, smell was another one in my mind then.
0: Yep, yep. he
1: is to eventually over time to be willing to have a go. Okay,
0: because so the start really the desensitization. Mouth, like,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, okay. No, fair point. So keep <laughs> trying, keep trying. So I guess if we have a look at, you mentioned before, less than twenty foods, or if kids aren't, aren't eating a lot of foods, this is something that I wonder: is it at that point when you feel like your child doesn't have enough variety in their diet? Is it that point that you kind of would suggest nutritionist or dietitian come into the picture? When do you know that that variety is not there? Yeah. Do you need to get blood tests happening? Like, what you, what are the signals?
1: I think find someone you're happy to talk to first. That may be your GP. Often GPs will look at what's happening holistically. Try not to look at what's happening in one meal, but maybe look at foods over a week And because children vary from day to day with their appetites and what they're willing to eat. So look at the diet over the week and talk to someone who you trust. So if a GP is concerned, they may suggest a blood test, for example, to look at iron levels if it's a child that doesn't eat meat but then from there they may suggest a referral to a dietitian to have a look at more to get more information about the nutrients that the child is getting through the diet that they have currently it's really important to make sure that you're looking at feeding and having that positive experience with food all the time though and putting those worries Those worries are huge for a parent, but making sure that you're getting the right support to make eating positive and not worrying too much about the nutrition, but
0: getting the support if there are concerns. Absolutely. So let's get into the nitty gritty of some practical handy tips that we want to pass on to parents and also to educators who often can struggle with this in early childhood settings. Absolutely. Yep. What are some really handy suggestions in terms of helping us to manage any fussy feeders that we have at our hands? Well, as I said to you before, one of the first things to do is to really give
1: children the opportunity to explore and be exposed to a whole range of foods. So that means not restricting what you put in front of them to just what they eat. It can be a huge challenge for some kids to even accept food on the table in front of them if they are really averse to a certain food. So doing that in a gentle way and that's where using some oral or some desensitisation and working through that sequentially can be important. There is a specific program called the SOS program which stands for sequential oral sensory hierarchy or program and there are many professionals trained to support in that. Something that's really easy to do as a parent or as a professional working in a childcare setting would be to follow Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. And that is where foods, the adults decide where a child's going to eat and when that's going to occur. So setting a bit of a routine around meal times and presenting the types of foods that are available to that child. And then the child chooses how much of that food to eat and which foods from that choice they are going to eat. And that's okay having one food on the table that the child is comfortable with and is going to eat is really important. So they've got a safe food there to eat, but they're engaged in a mealtime that's enjoyable and social and as seeing other people eating and seeing a whole range of foods at the same time. So that's something really easy that you can do to adapt your meal times.
0: Fantastic. And I think one of the points you mentioned earlier in having the child choose it helps them to give them that element of control doesn't it yeah that's right and also i know in previous podcast episode when we spoke to a dietitian she mentioned having kids learn how to listen to their own bodies and trust their appetite absolutely yeah any kind of i know we touched on babies and you have worked with premature babies so any kind of tips or strategies for management there where you know your experience kind of might help some of our parents who are concerned about that kind of subgroup?
1: I think again my biggest advice with that group which so you're looking at very young babies who are still breast or bottle fed then in that age group if things aren't going well making sure you're linking in with health professionals that can support you there in developing the child's ability to eat, looking holistically at the whole child and and looking at why those difficulties are occurring. So link in with your GP, your lactation consultant, speech pathologist, dietitian, someone who can support you with working out what's going on and making sure that your child is growing. There are babies who really struggle to get enough in and, and failure to thrive is when a child isn't growing at a rate expected. So you really wanna make sure that you stay on top of feeding at that young critical age and that you get the right support.
0: Absolutely. So we've talked a bit about things that we want to do and practical suggestions. Any things that we shouldn't be doing that you come across a lot with parents that you meet?
1: Yeah, there are lots of things. I think one of the big ones these days is using iPad and TV as a distraction. The way that we live these days is fast paced. Mm. Often both parents are working, picking up children from daycare late in the evening, and it's easy to pop some food on the table in front of the child or on the lounge and and pop the TV on and let them eat. It can work sometimes in some families and it can be okay some of the time, but for children who are fussy, being able to be involved in a family style meal and really enjoy that experience and share that eating relationship with food, then If you can replace some of those distractions with some family meals at least some of the time, then you're on the right track. The other little tip that I would pop in there is that sometimes we fall into that temptation of bribing children to eat just that little bit more by offering a dessert or a favourite food afterwards if you eat one more bit Mm. of broccoli. But as you mentioned before, teaching children to listen to their bodies and to understand when they've had enough and when they're full and feeling comfortable with trying those new foods is going to get you further in the long run.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Great advice, Nicole. Tell me just to wrap up, what's your take home message for our um, listeners today?
1: Learning to eat is is complex. It's a developmental process. It takes time. So give it time. Take that pressure off. You're doing a great job by showing that you are concerned, that you want to take that step to find out more about your child's eating and how they're developing. So trust yourself and your instincts as well. Provide that supportive, loving relationship with your child around food and, and you're on the right track. Keep working at it.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing a chat about feeding and fussiness. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. And that wraps up my chat with Nicole. And I must say that, you know, dinner time at my household is is very much a reinforced family conversational time. I know that everyone enjoys that opportunity to reconnect, you know, after a day of various activities. And I use that time to have everyone reflect on their day, talk about the highlights. And it does create a space For the family to be able to express themselves and to also have a space where they feel and are listened to. So, you know, one of my tips is really just try to to have some sacred family time around a meal and make it as social and as positive as possible. We will have listed on our show notes the resources that Nicole mentioned. You can find those on chataboutchildren.com. And of course, should you have any concerns for your child's diet or nutrition, do seek advice from your doctor or relevant health professional. Coming up next episode, episode nine, we're talking about peanut allergy, and I'm going to be chatting to a pediatrician who is an allergy specialist, and she's going to be telling us about the latest research when it comes to peanut allergy. There is hope on the horizon, so make sure you tune in for that one. If you've enjoyed today's episode and found any tips and strategies valuable, please make sure that you do leave a rating and a review. Do subscribe to the Chat About Children podcast, and I encourage you to share this episode with family, with friends and with colleagues and just help spread the word. I do celebrate you. Take care and chat soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich. www.chataboutchildren.com.